Well, good morning. It's good to be back out here with you all again. Um, we had a good time last week getting some rest, um, and so uh, we're feeling a little bit better about life and getting through it all. You know, it is a, a awesome biblical concept to take time to rest, and um, you know, I, I will always use the Bible to try to justify taking a vacation anytime, you know, I think that's just part of it. We open up to Ephesians chapter 1 last time when we were here before you, we started into the book of Ephesians, still on this kind of grander sermon topic that we have been addressing for several weeks of radical grace and how that affects our lives, changes us, um, gives us new purpose. We started in the intro to Ephesians chapter 1, looking at kind of who we are um, because of radical grace, because of what the grace of God has done for us, how it's changed us, made us new, given us new purpose. We kind of dove into that, and we started with the topic last time of the, as, as we called it, the choosiness of God. Um, I know that's probably not the most appropriate word, but it's appropriate for the situation, I think, and it is a uh, biblical fact that we addressed. We talked about how God has kind of always been choosy um, in the sense that he chose just Adam and Eve, and then he chose just Noah and his family, and then he chose Abraham, and he chose Isaac, and he chose Jacob, and he didn't choose Ish- Ishmael. And, you know, he there's there's this choosiness. And, and the reason Paul is kind of highlighting that and, and some more as we'll see as we get into this this morning, but he's trying to bring the Gentiles into this kind of grander, greater, historical, but also, I guess you would call it prehistorical, um, plan and event that God has been doing before the world was ever even put into existence. And so the Jews have all this history that they can claim. They get to go back and say, oh, well, we are descendants of Jacob and of Isaac and of Abraham, and, and we can go back to Noah, and we can talk about Moses, and we can you know, get all this collective history that, the, that we have as Jews, and the Gentiles come to the table as these kind of new guys, these foreigners, these kind of late additions to the um, bigger picture that's been going on for several thousand years. And so even Paul will highlight his own kind of, as you'd say, late comeliness, if that's again a word, uh, late coming to the grander picture. Even Paul said, you know, I am a apostle that was born out of due time or born out of time compared to the others. I didn't come with the original 12. I kind of came later to the picture. But even me, Paul, I feel included in this greater, grander scheme that God has been working on forever. And so here he's kind of drawing the Gentiles into this too. He's like, hey guys, don't feel left out. Don't feel like you're not a part of this. Don't look and say, oh, well, look, the Jews have all this credibility because they have all this history and they have all those ties. Because a lot of times Paul will draw out their credibility and say their credibility is kind of shot given the history that they have. He'll go back and say, yeah, they were the chosen people, but look what they did with the choice. Look at the nation. Look at what happened to them. Look at how they rejected God over and over again. Look at how just recently with Jesus they rejected God. So 
Don't let the historical be the thing that you're basing all the credibility off of. Instead, the thing that is credible that he ties back throughout all history was that kind of connection of faith that went all the way back to Moses, went all the way back to Abraham, um, that tied all those people to God just as now the Gentiles were tied to God. And so we looked at the identity from the choosiness side of things, how he chose us, all of us, before the foundation of the world, how he chose not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles, and not just the Jews and Gentiles, but a people that came from everyone, okay, from all peoples, all creeds, all banners, all nationalities, all, I mean, there was no just one single ethnic racial group that made up quote unquote his people he says no guys there's been something beyond this greater than this that has been going on from before going on ever started okay so he made the point that all of y'all have been chosen before the foundation of the world so you can look at how israel and the jews yes were a chosen people set aside and have been for millennia but guess what even beyond that and before that there was all of us all of us who are connected through the same faith that were connected back to the same choice that goes back before the world ever began. We talked about how mind-blowing it is to consider that, that it, this, is, this is not a timeline thing. It's not that God is looking at this linear timeline and it's like, okay, here we are pre-history and here we are pre-creation and pre-creation we decided, okay, this is what's going to happen in the timeline at this point and when God gets to his timeline, he finally hits it. No, there's this eternal untimeliness to everything that was before we ever were. And again, we know, I know that's, that's so hard to grasp. It's so hard for us to kind of encompass that in our brains because all we can think of is things in a linear, timely fashion and in a three-dimensional way. That's it. I mean, God is multidimensional, not bound by time. He extends in all ways. He's infinite and also eternal. I mean, there's, there's just things that we don't have a concept of. But what we know is before this whole linear thing that we have been existing in for several millennia, before it ever got put into motion, there was God, there was Jesus, there was the Son, there was the Holy Spirit, and all of them were thinking, choosing, planning about us. So we talked about how phenomenal that kind of love is, okay? You can see people who today get into marriages that last 60, 70 years, and we're all like, whoa, you know, how in the world does that happen? Because in our culture today, things are so brief, and it's like if you get to 10 years, especially if you see some kind of Hollywood star make it to 10 years, you're like, wow, they really are beating the curve on that one. Um, you know, some people are, are married and divorced within the same month, let alone going on 10 years. So you hit these 10-year milestones and you go, wow, what a long time for two people to be in love. And then you hit 25 and you go, wow, what a long time for people to be in love. And then you hit 75 and you go, man, that's almost not, not even possible. How do they even live long enough together to meet that milestone? But it happens. And we say, man, how phenomenal it is that two people have been so uniquely knit together for so long. And then you think about God, the Trinity, and their love for us, and it's much longer than 75 years. 
goes way beyond that. And it continues on. It never changes. never goes away. There's nothing that can separate us from it. There's nothing that divides us from it. It's not like God gets so far down the road and goes, you know what, this really was not how I planned this out. He doesn't come to a point in our history, thank God, that he doesn't come to a point in our history and he goes, you know what, we've reached some unreconcilable differences here. We've reached some things we're never going to be able to agree upon or get over. Instead, God says, no, I have made a covenant with you and I have promised that not only am I going to be keeping up my end of the bargain, I'm going to be keeping up your end of the bargain as well. We're going to see this through. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. And even when you get way out on the side of that mountain, I'm still going to leave all the other ones that are hanging out in the pen and I'm going to go get you and you're coming back with me because I've paid for you, I've covenanted with you. You're not going anywhere. So there's a... There's a beautiful extension of this love that we get to experience here in this life that it's just a small amount. I mean, we think about our lives being anywhere from 70-something to 90-something years maybe, you know? And we're talking about something that a love that has been existent, if you're thinking of however you want to think it, if you want to call it young earth or old earth, either way, that's a long time before you ever even came on the scene, that this love has been existing, that the covenant love of the Father has been with us. And then we're here for a short 70 to 90 years. We experience in this temporal fashion, and then we get to jettison and go on and experience for the rest of eternity. It's just amazing the different applications and the different phases that this takes, but what is constant through it all is still this ever-loving love of the Father. So here we found the choosiness. Now we get into a section of the scripture. I know we're kind of inching through this. I don't think I've ever gone this slowly. My ADHD compulsiveness makes me want to get things done. You know, I want to take a chapter and get it done. I don't want to just pop through a couple of verses. But here there's just these first few verses may not be like this the whole time, but these first few verses, there's just things that need to be addressed because they set up such a big principle, and it's what Paul was opening with. He was like, guys, you have got to get this. You've got to get that you've been loved for a very long time, and you'll continue to be loved for a very long time, so don't ever get to a point in your life where you go, we're out of bounds, we're away, we're disconnected, we're never getting back, I'm forsaken, I'm lost, I'm destitute. He says, no, that ever-present love of God is still there. It was there before, it will certainly be there after. It's still there right now. You have been chosen. You have been chosen by the Father. And then he starts talking about the next phase of this, or the next kind of application to this, where in verse 7 it says, In whom, that's Christ, we also have redemption through his blood, which is the forgiveness of sins, according to to the riches of his grace wherein he has abounded to us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself, that in the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, all of those even or in him so the next kind of application he gives of this is he says well we have the choosing 
And we've talked about how you were chosen and how you were you were called into this. This is the Father's sovereign movement in our lives to bring us into this kind of new created existence that we didn't have before. It says, you have been chosen into this capacity, but not just chosen, you have also been redeemed in the same capacity. The, the redemption aspect of this is another component of kind of the Jewish history thing that, again, he's trying to draw the Gentiles into. The Jews are very familiar with their history. Um, in fact, the Passover they celebrate every single year that they were commanded by God to celebrate every single year was a celebration of redemption. Okay, And so they had a history that was built around it. They had a history that was built around this kind of common theme. Well, the Gentiles are, again, they're latecomers to the game. They don't have this historical day they celebrate every year to celebrate the redemptive power of God. They don't have all these, these kind of built-in intrinsic things that are a part of their culture and life to point them to the redemptive power of God. Instead, they just have Jesus. Yeah, you know, this whole kind of powerful cross thing, that's what they get, but, uh, you know, they don't have Passover, they don't have bitter herbs, they don't have, you know, unleavened bread and all that. They just have, you know, the Son of God coming down, dying on a cross, and being recognized by that. I don't know which one you want more. Some people really like their holidays, but the Gentiles have this, I'm not going to necessarily describe it as greater claim, but they do, they have Jesus. It's kind of where we come in. We come into this as the post-Christ, okay, the post-Christ church that's 2,000 years removed from the kind of precipitating event, and we don't have the culture that the Jews had when all of this got started. And I think over time, for sure, there has been, a, even in some cases, there's been a push away from the cultural things of the Jews. We've had conversations about this before, in particular when we're talking about circumcision in Galatians, that, you know, there was the Jewish concept of circumcision didn't go away. Like, the Jewish church that started in Jerusalem was still circumcising their members. In fact, some of them thought that was a really important thing that had to continue. That's kind of what the whole book of Galatians is about. But the Gentiles didn't necessarily jump on board with that. And in fact, a little further down the road, especially when you get kind of into the 300s and 400s, when this becomes very you know, institutionalized as a government, religious kind of cohabitating thing that was going on there, you even have a push against the Jewish traditions and customs to where there was people who purposefully were uncircumcised because it was too Jewish, okay? And so you have this kind of push away from that historical culture. And so when you get as far out as we are, we most certainly, I mean, we're not, you know, we don't celebrate Passover in that way. We don't celebrate, celebrate Yom Kippur. We don't, you know, we, we kind of have a, a, a different cultural narrative that has come up over several, several generations. But what we hold back to is the same thing that the Jewish church in its origin was holding to. They were all uniting, as Paul was talking about in Galatians. We all united around Christ. It's kind of the only thing you can unite around. And in this first chapter of Ephesians, that's what he's pointing back to. He's going, guys, it's in Christ 
that you were chosen. It was in Christ that you were redeemed. It was in Christ that the fullness of all these plans were manifested. It's in Christ that you are the church of Christ, in Christ, and for Christ. It's kind of like Christ is the main man in this whole situation. And so as he's getting into this redemptive history with them, he's saying, Gentiles, y'all are... Y'all are in Christ. You have the redemption in Christ. And yes, the Jews have this history. And yeah, they were redeemed, you know, physically as a nation. And yes, they were redeemed in that case from Egypt. And they were delivered and they were emancipated, which is kind of what that word means. We have a hard time sometimes with these words because they have so many different connotations in our language today. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's just, you, you really have to go back and look at the Greek and what it was talking about because it's not, we think of it as a different way. You can redeem a coupon, okay? Um, that does not have the same connotation as being emancipated from slavery, okay? If it was just that easy, okay, you know, we would not have had, you know, this whole Gettysburg Address or anything. We wouldn't have had the Emancipation Proclamation. All we'd had to do is scratch and win, and there you go, slavery's done. That's not what we're getting at here. We're not redeeming a can for five cents, and we're not redeeming a coupon to get 5% off redemption in this capacity, as he describes it, means ransoming, deliverance, liberation from captivity, or emancipation, which I think is a very fitting word in our time, especially since we just passed by July 4th, and we, even though by no means were we in slavery in America, but we have a, we had the, the bondage that was viewed at that time, and that's why we celebrate the Declaration of Independence, okay? We felt we were not free in that manner. We celebrate that every year, the freedom that we gained in launching our nation but there's also we just passed in you know july and june we had the holiday that was juneteenth that we you know a lot of times just blow right past but that was the emancipation proclamation by lincoln making it all the way to the farthest region regions of the union at that time which was galveston texas and so that was a emancipation okay the emancipation of slavery at that point in time reaching the furthest parts of the union so you had this idea of emancipation, and that's what redemption is talking about here. We were delivered, okay? Now, again, the Jews celebrated that every year, their deliverance from Egypt and Passover. Got a little watered down as it went further, but that was what it was originally for, okay? Was God telling his people, make sure you celebrate this day, the day when you were delivered from slavery in Egypt. And remember, they were supposed to wear their sandals, and they were supposed to gird their belt on, and they were supposed to carry their staff, and they were going to eat the meal, and then boom, they were out, because that's what happened on that, you know, glorious day when Charleston Heston carried his staff and led the people to victory, okay? Um, that's how that went, all right? But that was a day of deliverance. That was an emancipation. 400 years of slavery ended in that night. Where they ate the meal, and in the middle of the night, they were told to get out. They took their stuff, and they left. Paul, here in his opening salvo to the Ephesian church, wants to celebrate their emancipation as well. The greater emancipation. The emancipation for all of us in Christ. 
Okay, so again, we talk about how Israel and the things of Israel and what went on with Israel was very much kind of a picture or a foreshadow or a kind of microcosm of the greater. Okay, we have these images when we see things like about the temple and about the tabernacle. And when we were going through the Pentateuch, you know, we were going through all that. And we were talking about how it was representative of the temple or the tabernacle, which, tabernacle which is above. Okay, so we talk about how the tabernacle or temple here on this earth was a representation of the temple which was above. It was to represent, it was to be a little microcosm picture of what the greater, grander, heavenly temple was to look like. Well, in the same way, we talk about the choosing of Israel, choosing a nation. We highlight that. That, in my opinion, was highlighted to show God's choosiness in choosing a people. Okay, And then we see in Ephesians, he broadens that and says, this is the mystery that he's going to get into. This is the greater picture. You have Israel, which made up part of this church and obviously was the founding church. You have the Jews and Israel who were part of this choosing nature of God. But it wasn't just them. Here you go. Here's the mystery. Everyone greater than just Israel, okay, is chosen in this capacity. Well, the same thing that you see here with the redemption. You look at Israel. You look at the story of Israel. Their, like, founding moment was what? Well, it was emancipation from Egypt. That's when they became that nation. They walked out as a nation to go inherit the land that they had been promised for hundreds of years, going all the way back to Abraham. That was the moment when they were delivered from slavery, which God promised them he would do. Well, with us, we too have been emancipated. We have been delivered. We have been redeemed in that way. Okay, So he says that this redemption is... Through his blood, it is the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence. So he wants to remind them that this, this whole thing about choosing was before the foundation of the world. The plan and designs for redemption were before the foundation of the world, okay? He didn't just jump into the timeline and go, oh, man, we really got to figure out how we got to save all these people. Man, let's, okay, huddle, let's figure this out. We've got it all running in motion. Adam's already broken the world and the universe. Now we got to really figure out how we're going to get this salvation thing kicked off. All these plans are ancient. The plan to, the, the idea of loving us is ancient. In fact, I don't know, we have the term prehistory, but we're like, Again, I, don't, I struggle for the word to say, what is pre-creation, you know? What do you call that? There's probably some big Latin word that would work for it, but I don't know it. This is the same idea, though. Your redemption, God had always planned to redeem you. He had never come to a moment where he was saying, you know what? We kind of talked about this before the world began, but I'm having second thoughts about Adam. I'm really kind of happy about that. I may have second thoughts about myself, but I'm glad that God doesn't have second thoughts about me. He says, no, I've been planning. We were, we were planning your redemption before you ever were. Just as I've been loving you before you ever were, we've been planning your redemption before we ever were. And he wants to grab this because you have the Gentiles, again, who are struggling with this identity crisis, so to speak. He says, guys, the thing that you're hanging on to, that cross of Jesus Christ thing that you are so intimately acquainted with, 
That is the thing that has been being planned since before the foundation of the world to establish and secure your redemption. It says you highlight the Jews and their emancipation and you highlight their redemption and they have a long history of celebrating that. What I want to tell you is there's a longer history of the redemptive works of Christ and God that have been going on for much longer than the Jews and the Passover. It says, so come on into this reality as well. Yes, you've been chosen. Yes, you have been redeemed. And all of this is kind of bringing everyone together in Christ, Jews, Gentiles, history, non-history, whatever it is, all of it coming together in Christ. So you have the mentality with these Gentiles that maybe they don't have the same credibility that the Jews have, but also you have too in this same capacity on the same, uh, maybe the other side of the coin, you have, there were Jews that really held on to that history as being the thing that gave them credibility. In fact, there was some of them that viewed that they weren't even ever in need of deliverance. In fact, when you look at John chapter 8, when the Pharisees are kind of coming up against Jesus, Jesus makes the point that he says, if you abide in me or if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Okay? There's that emancipation word. It will deliver you. You will be redeemed in that way. And the Jews answered and said, we're Abraham's offspring. We've never been in slavery. Just kind of, I think, a little revisionist history there since you're going back to Abraham, but then you kind of went into slavery after that for 400 years. But maybe we're just glossing over that or ignoring that. Or maybe we just didn't view ourselves as that. But he says, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved. How can you say then that we will become free. And Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say to you, that everyone who is, you'd say, a practicer of sin, okay, everyone who engages in sin, everyone who is still bound to sin, they are a slave to sin. You are enslaved. You're not free. The slave does not stay in the house forever, but the son does remain forever. And the son, if the son has set you free, then are you free indeed. I know you are Abraham's offspring, and yet you seek to kill me because my word does not have a place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Which is a little slight to say... You're not of my father. Um, but anyway, that being said, Jesus is making the point. He says, you don't realize how enslaved you really are. You are enslaved. Okay, You are enslaved to the sin that you are letting rule your life. Say, oh yeah, but look at our history. Look at our emancipation. Look at Abraham. We were always a free people. How can you say that we are enslaved? So you have this other side of the coin where, yes, maybe the Gentiles are questioning their credibility because of history, but you also have the Jews going, oh, I mean, our history points to us as being this free chosen people. Why would we need redemption? And Paul is making the point here to say, you have all been redeemed in Christ, which would just naturally, logically imply you were all enslaved to sin. You were all in bondage. 
do we recognize that we were or that we are in bondage? Do we recognize that we needed or still may need redemption? That we were or still are enslaved? You know, we think of this slavery to sin and we kind of get these big theological concepts or ideas about it, but it's much more granular than that in many cases. You have slaves who were slaves to depression. You have slaves to anxiety, to hate to racism or bigotry, to bitterness, to anger, even slaves to elitism. It's kind of where the Pharisees sat most of their time. Slaves to fear. So slavery can be more than just what we view in the kind of bigger pictures of, well, we were a slave to sin and death. We were slaves to the transgression of Adam in the garden. Even if you came down a little bit further and said, well, we were enslaved to, you know, the lusts of the flesh or whatever it may be, it can get much more granular than that. A lot of times we want to ignore the other things. We want to kind of put depression over here as some other problem or anxiety over here as some other problem. But those can be just as enslaving and, is that that right way? Just as enslaving and they can also be they're also from the same source. Remember, he says, I did not give you a spirit of fear. So where obviously did that come from? If it didn't come from God, there's only one other source that it could come from. Paul, when he was writing to the Roman church in chapter 6, says this, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, or be servants or slaves of sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin, right? That's a pretty, again, logical argument. <laughs> if you are dead, you can no longer be practicing sin because you are dead really makes you free from a lot of things you're also free from your mortgage if you're dead you're also free from responsibilities of going to work when you're dead but you most certainly are freed from sin when you're dead because you can't do sin anymore because you are dead okay there's a lot of things you can't do now if we are dead with christ we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that christ being raised from the dead dies no more Death has no more dominion over him. So we get this picture of you are enslaved to sin. Christ has died for us. We are bound in Christ. Therefore, we have died with Christ. And if we are dead, then sin no longer has reign over us in that fashion. We're no longer enslaved to sin. Okay? Again, you have to recognize that you were first enslaved to rejoice in the fact that you've been emancipated, right? There's a rejoicing in that. In fact, that's what Paul wants them to do in this opening part is to rejoice in that. Hey, you have all been enslaved. Hey, but here's the great news. Christ has emancipated you. All of you, Jews and Gentiles. And it wasn't based off your history, and it's not based off your lineage, and it's not based off the religious practices that you're doing. It's just in Christ. And I even love that he reiterates over and over again that it's in Christ and not through Christ. 
And you say, well, what would be the difference there? When you point it back as in Christ, it makes Christ the center focus of everything. Christ is the only source. Christ is the place you find it. Christ is the only place you find it. When you make it through Christ, it makes it almost sound like Christ is just kind of a means to the end. We're passing by Christ to get to some other greater reality. Whereas when it's, everything is placed in Christ, that means Christ is the centerpiece of everything. We don't find redemption through him. We find it in him. We don't find peace and joy and hope and purpose through Christ. We find it in him, which means that our focus, our, our drive, everything is on him. Not just getting through him to another place that will ultimately get us to those things. But no, it's, all, it's in him. Just what he said at the beginning. All of your spiritual blessings are... In Christ, not through him or through religion based off of him or through practices that are loosely connected to him, but no, it's him. He is the source of it. As a living, breathing entity, it's in him. So who do we turn to? We turn to Christ. We don't turn to something that came through Christ. We turn to Christ himself. And when you read these kind of emancipation sentences that are given here, we have to realize that, yes, we do get in kind of the mindset that, you know, well, when Christ died on the cross, it was once for all, we're done, there's no more need for sacrifice, and we kind of look at this as a one-and-done deal. You were emancipated, that was 2,000 years ago, now we're here. But look at the, the now connotation to every one of these verses, He's not just speaking of some historical fact that happened and the ledger's been ripe, clean, the books are closed, move on. Now we go on to the next phase of life. He's saying, no, this is all still circling now. Yes, you were emancipated by the works and the blood of Jesus Christ, but now are you a slave to sin? He says you've been redeemed, you've died to it. It's no longer your master, but... How are you living in accordance with that? Do we grasp fully the understanding that we are now freed from sin? This is not just some ledger book application that's going to get us to heaven one day. It's now. Like we talk about eternal life. It's not something in the future. It's now. Do we understand that we will never die? Do you understand that we will never cease to exist? It's a now thing. Our eternal life is already going on. When we started living... When we were born again, we started an eternal life that will continue on and on and never stop. Well, our freedom is now. It's not, oh, one day we're going to get there. It's, you're free now. Do we understand that we can put ourselves back into bondage? As he said, when you go to serving sin and practicing it as the mainstay of your life, well, you are enslaving yourself to it again. Paul continued in his letter to the Romans in verse 16 of chapter 6, and he says, Know not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, or slaves to obey, his slaves you are to whom you obey, whether that is of sin to death or obedience to righteousness. 
But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from your heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. That's a now thing. That's today. That's tomorrow. That's next week. Obedience to righteousness, enslaving yourself to righteousness. I mean, Jesus said it was not that you were coming out of one bondage into absolute freedom. I mean, he said, you're going to take my cross on you. You're going to put my yoke on you, but rest assured that my yoke is easy and the burden that I'm placing on you is light compared to the yoke that you were putting yourself under through sin and those things, which is heavy, depressing, destructive, and ultimately leads to death. So he says, understand that whoever you are placing yourself in submission to, that's who's going to rule your life. If you're placing yourself in submission to anxiety or depression or fear or anger or bitterness or racism or whatever it may be, well, congratulations, if you continue to do that, you will continue to be enslaved to those things. And I think what, if anything, the, the culture of today has shown us, especially on Things like Facebook and wherever is, there's a lot of people who are enslaved. There's a lot of people who are enslaved to these ideologies. There's a lot of people who are enslaved to anger, who are enslaved to depression, who are enslaved to all of these things because they just continue in this endless cycle of whatever it is they're feeding off of. And I don't think anybody would honestly tell you that if they really are living in that right now that they don't come away every day every morning going i'm depressed about x i'm depressed about whatever i'm depressed about my life and how it's going i'm depressed about what i see on tv i'm depressed about uh, the way the country's going i'm depressed about i'm depressed about i'm depressed about i'm depressed about because we're just constantly feeding that's slavery that we're in. We're constantly feeding the idea that whatever we have locked ourselves into, if it doesn't go the way we think it should, is ultimately going to mean catastrophe, despair, and destruction. And all I'm telling you is, is we're putting our vision on the wrong marker. We're looking at the wrong place. I hope and pray that we are not looking to our Instagram or Facebook feed for our sustenance, for our happiness, for our purpose, because you're just going to find a lot of garbage. I guarantee you that. If your whole identity is based off of how you appear on Facebook, you are really setting the bar low. Christ did not come and die for you and love you from eternity to have Facebook followers, okay? That wasn't what he came for. And he didn't come because he liked your, you know, quirky remarks you can put on Twitter. He didn't choose you because you had a really awesome Instagram feed. 
So if that's where you're finding it, and here's the thing, if you're finding that when you watch that TV show, or if you're finding that when you scroll through that Twitter feed, that you're feeling anxious, angry, in despair, depression, anxiety, whatever it is, then this is what I would tell you to do. Take it, close it, press the X on it, delete it, walk away from it, cancel your cable subscription, find something else to watch, put Mary Poppins on repeat, whatever you got to do, even though some people, especially Mary Poppins one, I mean, it just creeps me right out, but if you, if you got to do something, if you feel that you are physically and emotionally affected by this, guess what? Congratulations. You might as well put the handcuffs on. You are in slavery. As much as we rant and holler and burn sparklers on the July 4th, you are a slave. And it's not to righteousness or to Christ. So how do we escape slavery? How, do we, how have we escaped slavery? Well, we escaped it, the slavery of, skin, of sin, in Christ in his work, in his redemptive power, in his blood, in his destruction of the devil. And we escape it by our obedience to the word of God, by fleeing sin, by following righteousness. Peter writes in his second epistle, he'll say, And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things are in you and abound, they will make you that you shall neither be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins, i.e. that he was emancipated, that you have been delivered, that you are free, that you are no longer a slave in these things. But notice the, the, the kind of two characteristics here. One is you have faith, which we know given by God. But he says... You're going to add, build up, or enforce with that faith these very practical, godly things. Patience, self-control, brotherly love. I think we've heard a few sermons about love and brotherly love and love your neighbor. These are the characteristics that you put around it to feed the fire. And it says that if you add these things, if you build these things up around it, if this is what you're feeding on your Facebook feed instead of on all the other garbage, then guess what? You will not be barren or unfruitful. You will be prosperous in the things of Christ. You will find peace. You will find joy. You will find mercy and, and compassion and, and purpose. But if you don't, and instead, if you enslave yourself to the things of the world again, then guess what? You are like someone who is nearsighted and cannot see afar off. You have forgotten that you were delivered from all this, and you're so nearsighted, you can only see your own self-actualization. You can only see your own whatever you're feeding, okay? It's like the person who can't see any further than the dinner plate that they're shoveling down their throats, you just don't realize that what you're shoveling down your throat is garbage and is ultimately going to kill you. 
You can't see past the end of your fork. You can't see to the greater picture. You can't see to the future. You can't see pre-future. You can't see back pre-history. You can't see that you were chosen and loved before the foundation of the world. You can't see the redemption that you had in Christ. And you can't see the future redemption that you will ultimately receive. You're just stuck eating from the same trough full of garbage. I hope that is a vivid enough picture. Think about a hog that is eating lunch. Number one, I don't know the whole thing about how the hogs never see the sky because they can't look up. I mean, I think that's like a thing. I'm not sure. Um, I think they don't sweat either. I don't really know why these are facts that we should know or care about, but they're there. Um, That being said, when a hog is down there eating from the trough, it doesn't really have a whole lot of future in its vision, does it? That's eating the trash that's right before it. And we sit for hours looking down at the trough, eating the garbage that is before us. Or we sit in our very comfortable chairs or couches, looking very nearsightedly and not looking at the future that's before us. We have to be concerned about that because if we're not, no one else is. That's what I think is more pressing in all this. That is what I think is what is so important for us. If we're not doing it, there's not anybody else. I don't care who's elected for president. I don't care who. I, I don't, it doesn't matter. We are the ones who've been called to this. In fact, we were chosen for this a very, very long time ago. We were redeemed for this a very long time ago and at a very high cost. So how do we escape slavery? How do we remain in freedom? How do we live redeemed? You add to your faith that is given to you in Christ. You add virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. I think the fact that those three are the last are so important. Remember how Paul in his letter to the Corinthians said, I can speak in all the tongues, I can have all charity and give to the poor, and I can completely break all of the social, economical problems in the world. But if I don't have love, it is all nothing. It means nothing. Greatest charitable organization, greatest problem-solving team, whatever it may be, without the love of Jesus Christ, it means nothing. And that's why he, in my opinion, says, yes, you've got these kind of three or four big things that are really a lot about you when you're talking about virtue and you're talking about knowledge and you're talking about self-control, even though I think that is also one that is woefully inadequate on Facebook, okay? Self-control steadfastness in these things because you know the problem is is that one post one tweet one whatever torpedoes your entire ministry one wrong word out here one wrong action torpedoes it you got to be steadfast in it i'm not saying that's that's we're always going to be perfect in everything but if you're practicing more self-control it makes it a lot easier to be steadfast okay 
If you're practicing more self-control, you can control your tongue, control your mind, control your thumb, whatever it may be, to keep you out of trouble. But more than that, he capstones it with add to it godliness, add to it brotherly affection, add to it love. He's said that more than once, that that's an important aspect. And then you flee the things that entangle you again. If certain movies stir up the desires that drive you back into the arms of slavery, well, then guess what? You just don't watch them. If Facebook or Twitter or Instagram constantly feed your anxiety, anger, hate, or bitterness, guess what? You just delete it. And if the news constantly stokes your fears, racism, bigotry, or whatever, guess what? You just don't watch it. But you have to recognize that it is a source of slavery for you or else it'll just continue on in it. And you'll continue to be depressed and you'll continue to wake up anxious about the future and you'll continue to wake up in all these things and you will continue to be nearsighted and there is no Schaefer Eye Center that will correct it for you. Okay? He goes on to say the revelation of this is that he has poured this out in abundance on us or he is richly poured this out with all wisdom and prudence or all wisdom and understanding. And he has made known the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure that he purposed in Christ. That's what I think is so fantastic about this. I want you to catch it every time he says it. He says, because it was his good pleasure, it made him happy to do this. He, if, if it makes him happy to do this, it should make us happy that he did it, right? If it made him happy to do these things, it should make us happy that he did them. And he says, I didn't leave you in the dark. This redemption didn't come as a secret, nor did it come with hidden wisdom or understanding that you're never going to be able to work out, or kind of like the Gnostics did in the first century of the church and say, oh no, you've got to have the right keys and the right interpretation, and we've got the right mysteries and all these things it's not that he says no in all of this in the choosing in the redemption through the grace that i have just poured out on you exceeding abundance okay all of this that i have given you he says i gave you with all wisdom and with all prudence very quickly the wisdom and the prudence thing that he describes there one of the commentaries describes the wisdom as the knowledge which sees into the heart of things and which knows them as they really are and the prudence or the insight that he describes there is the understanding which leads to right action. So Christ didn't just redeem us for a status change, but he redeemed us for a purpose. And then he gave us the wisdom and the insight that we needed so that we could see that purpose fulfilled. Okay, so I love that idea that he gives about wisdom where he says that it is the knowledge which sees into the hearts of things which knows them as they really are. You say, well, what all is that talking about? We're here, Paul is trying to explain to all of these brothers and sisters here at this church to go, hey, God has had this plan that he's been doing for a very long time. And this is the mystery that up until this point, no one really comprehended or knew about. In another place, he'll talk about how the angels were desiring to look into this thing, but they couldn't, they, they didn't get to, okay? Until boom, one day Christ institutes the church and blows the doors off the mysteries and says, this is what has been in plans since before the world began. That he would ultimately unite 
all things in Christ that are in heaven and in earth. That's the plan. That's what's gone on. That's what has happened. That's what the reality we're living in. So when he says that you have the wisdom to know these things as they truly are, well, you do now because you know things as they truly are. We know that this world is not some kind of cosmic accident, but a plan of God. And we know that us as a people are a plan of God. And we know that the things that are going to happen and what is going to go on, it all falls under the sovereign beauty of God in Christ. And everything is His in heaven and in earth. It's His. Who's the center point of all this? Well, it's Christ. Why? Because everything has been given and made in Him. In fact, in another place, He'll say that all things are in Him. Everything was created by Him and was created for Him. So when He takes the primacy in these situations, it's because, well, it's all his and that was part of the plan it was given to christ he gave his life he received the kingship he gave his life and fulfilled the plan that he was set out to do and all things were made into him so when we go out with our wisdom and our prudence to address the world we address it knowing things as they truly are and also having insight to know what is the right actions to take. The gospel gives us the view of the way things really are. And the gospel also gives us the insight to know what the right actions are. And with this, we can go and we can address people who we know are still in slavery and say, this is not the way things really are. I know you feel bound by whatever it is that you just can't get out of, but I'm telling you, that's not the way things really are. There was, there is, there will be emancipation for you. There is a deliverer. There is a redemption for you. You don't have to continue to live in this. Be, get free from all this. Don't entangle yourself again with all this. Don't bind yourself up with all this. Be free. Live. It's, much, it's a much better place to be in. You think you see things the way they really are, but you don't because you are blinded. You're blinded by the God of this world. You're blinded by the slavery that you have become so accustomed to. But I'm here to tell you that the Son can set you free. So we can see things the way they are because we have been redeemed and we have been given wisdom and insight. And then the calling that we're called to is not to go get drawn into needless debates and arguments or whatever it may be, but instead we cling to the greater wisdom and insight that has been given to us by Christ, and we go forth to proclaim the freedom that is in Jesus, and only in Jesus. We ourselves add to our faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, love. We Share that with everyone around us, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether wherever it may be, we are showing the rightness of the things of Christ. And we were showing them what freedom really looks like. 
And then we're entering into those spaces where freedom is not their normal, where they are enslaved. And say, hey, we can, there's a freedom from all this. You don't have to be bound in your depression. You don't have to be bound in your anxiety. You don't have to be bound by all of these things that you are shackled to. You can find a peace. You can find salvation. You can find deliverance. You can find freedom in Jesus Christ. And to be very honest, there's nowhere, there's nowhere else. You can meditate on this. You can intermittent fast. You can do whatever you want to do and rub essential oils. It will not get you over your anxiety, your depression, or whatever it is. The only person, the only source is Jesus Christ alone. So may God help us in this week to get rid of the shackles that we have put on ourselves to free ourselves from all of this stuff, especially this going on in our time right now and instead live in the freedom of Christ. But not only that, but there's a lot of lost, enslaved people, enslaved people out there. If we're not proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord, if we're not declaiming freedom for the captives proclaiming did i say declaiming if we're not proclaiming freedom for the captives then there's there's no one else that is so may god bless us to do that